You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we survey the Bible one book at a time. We're on the book of John right now, and I'm Drew Kaiser. I've got Andrew Kingsley with me, and uh, we're really enjoying our study of the book of John. This will be episode three of John, and uh, we are in the middle of the public ministry of Jesus. I'll run over the outline really quickly with you again just so you can recall what we introduced to you last episode. Uh, it starts with the prologue in chapter 1. Then picking up with chapter 1, verse 19, you have Jesus' public ministry. And that runs all the way through the end of chapter 12. With chapter 13 through chapter 17, you have Jesus' private ministry. That's Jesus and his 12 apostles. And then uh, chapter 18 through 20, Jesus' passion ministry and then you have the post postscript. That is a difficult word to say for me. Mm-hmm. Postscript. 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 Not a very common word. No. It, P.S. <clears throat> is what we'd say. But yeah. it's actually the epilogue of the book, which is chapter 21. Oh, Andrew just realized yeah, that that's what P.S. stands for. Yeah, I didn't want to say it to embarrass myself, but I'm going uh, to. No, I'll do That's my job. I embarrass you. my entire Outlook on life. P.S. stands for Yeah, so I know you write a lot of letters. Yeah, I put P.S. And do, at P.S. the end of all my text messages. I put yeah, P.S. That was back before you could backspace or insert you know, yeah. in and change your stuff. You had to add tax stuff on at the bottom of the letter. We don't have to do that anymore. So mm. don't feel so bad. It just means you're young and okay. vibrant and still have energy yeah. and, and stay up things. late and all those yeah. things that... Us older people can't do. Uh, thank you for joining us. We're going to get into chapter two today, cover the entire chapter, which sounds amazing because chapter one had 51 verses, but for some reason, chapter two only runs, what, 25, 26 verses long. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's very manageable material. And we have the first miracle in this chapter and also the first cleansing of the temple. And that's basically how this is going to break down. So let's begin our reading with the first miracle, the wedding at Cana. Here's how the chapter begins. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman! Is that how you... (laughs) I don't think so. Woman. Well, maybe. I don't know. Well, it probably is. not commentary you read. Yeah. But it, he was using here uh, kind of a Hebraism yeah. uh, idiom and a, a figure of speech that's unfamiliar to us. So it sounds kind of a, abrasive. But he says to her, yeah. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Which, what is that? What is he saying to her there? There's Well, there's. This was something we, I guess we started talking about right before uh, we hit record. It's another one of those instances where this kind of reflects the Hebrew. There's a couple of those. We've already seen one in John, but this is the next one. Uh, Literally, this is what to me and you is how it literally translates. There's no uh, verb in there, but the idea is what is it to me and you? Um and you can see that all over the place in the Old Testament. Um, and it's used in a few different contexts. Uh, but I think the most common is, like, what does this have to do with 
with us. Um, in some places, it's used in kind of a almost a confrontation between people saying, you know, what is it you have against me or what is this between me and you, that kind of example. Mm-hmm. But that's... I don't... Yeah, I don't think that's what it is. That's not what's going I think on it's, here. I kind of look at it this way. Uh, you have your point of view and I have my point of view. Mm-hmm. Is that is that just way off base? Well, I think it kind of, from what it's used in the Old Testament, it's almost like, what is this to me and you? You know, I think it does... Mm-hmm. They bring it out well when they say, what does this have to do with me? Um, it kind but, of a diversity of opinion is kind of the way I look at it. Like, I guess I guess you and I are seeing this differently. Okay. Uh, but that that's that's how I read it in um, Ralph Earl's word meanings of the New Testament is that he was saying, you know, uh, okay, what what to you, what to me, you know, mm. okay. <laughs> there's there's you and there's me. And we're on two different sides here. Okay. But yeah, I'm not saying I, that's right. That's just what well, Earl says. That sounds good. I've never I've never read anything on that before, but so that's why I don't really have much to weigh in on it. But that sounds I mean that's that's a good take on it. It definitely sounds like it fits into what's going on here. I mean it's hard to know exactly what I, I guess it's really hard to bring out exactly what the what it would have been in Hebrew. If mm-hmm. we can get as close as we can, I guess. I, mean, mm-hmm. I think we'd, we've got a... They did a pretty good Would job. Would you agree that it was this. a gentle rebuke? Uh, or would you even go that far? I don't even know that it was a rebuke, period. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think this is him being like rude or anything to his mom. Definitely the word woman there. I think some translations actually even say, translate that mother. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because in that culture, to call your mother woman was not, it was nowhere near what it would be in our culture to do that. Yeah. You get slapped <laughs> if you said that to your mom today. Yeah, or to but that wife. was perfectly acceptable for an adult child to say, to call his mother woman. Yeah, it's kind of, um, so, it was neutral almost, I guess. It wasn't bad. It wasn't yeah. like overly polite. It was and, just. And look who's. If it, if it is a, a diversity of opinion, look who wins. Mm. I mean, next thing you know, this guy, you know, he's he's making water into wine. Yeah. He's following her request. Yeah, that is true. And there's a whole slew of... I was looking in this anchor Bible commentary that I took off of your shelf. And there's so much stuff in there about Mary and her... Her uh, intercession to Jesus. They read a lot in it. There's some good stuff there, I guess, for the next section mm-hmm. to talk about and think. Uh, but bottom line here, reading this at, up front, it looks like he's kind of being very rude to his mother. But he's not. Right. He's not. That That's as far as we can probably go, not being immersed in the Hebrew culture in which this was spoken. Yeah. It's probably as much as we can take away from it. Mm-hmm. Um and and the reason for his stating this is in the next sentence to return to our reading my hour has not <clears throat> my hour has not yet come this is something that is said in different ways throughout the gospel of john to indicate a, the approaching of the hour of crucifixion or the hour for his purpose to be on earth he goes on though his mother says to the servants do whatever he tells you so <laughs> It would be a good way to 
That's good advice for all of us right you now. Know, matter of fact, Bob Bob Dylan was right. Just like a woman, I mean, she <laughs> uh, you know does like every woman I've ever known. Um, when he didn't agree, or I'm sure it wasn't just that. But um, can we rewind this? I think I'd probably. <laughs> okay. uh, so she sure, says, yeah. "Do whatever he tells you." And now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. That's the ESV uh, extrapolating that out from the original where it's measures of uh, something. But uh, each pot, 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Uh, then there's a little transitional statement here. After this, he went down to Capernaum, which was actually, uh, um, you know, down in elevation to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. That indicates a move from Nazareth to Capernaum. Capernaum is now their home. They were there only a few days because the Passover came up. And uh, John is the one who gives us these uh, clues of time being passed. And John is the one from which we can figure out that Jesus' ministry on earth was about three years. Because he mentions three Passovers. And this is the first one. So it's Passover. They're getting settled in at Capernaum. But it's just for a few days because Passover is here. And Jesus needs to go to Jerusalem. So he goes to the temple, verse 14, and he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. Well, imagine that the whip was for the sheep and oxen, but uh, it's fun to think about him (laughs) whipping the money changers also, but it was probably just for the livestock. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. An Old Testament scripture there. Now it's important to keep in mind that there are two temple cleansings. And it's important not to confuse this one with a later temple cleansing that's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, That's Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19. Uh, This is the first, and the second one would come at another feast time. And it would be very similar to it, but it's not the same one. The timeline just doesn't work out that way. So uh, he had some critics, and that's discussed in verses 18 through 22. He answers them by simply giving them the sign that his body, which he calls a temple, will be torn down in three days it will raise up. Mm -hmm. Of course, they didn't realize he was speaking of his death, burial, and resurrection, and so there was a lot of criticism 
about him in that. Then verse 23 says that when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his own part did not entrust himself to them. Now it's important to see here something you don't see in the English translations, that the term believed in verse 23 and entrust in verse 24 is the same term. So many trusted him, but he did not trust them. It was a good thing that many people were trusting in him. The sign had its effect. But he did not trust in them because he knew all people, and no one needed to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Just as he knew what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree, he knew what all the people around him were thinking And he knows, even today, what we are thinking. That's the end of chapter 2. Okay, so to start off our section of digging a little bit deeper, we want to get into probably what everybody's going to want us to get into here for a little bit. We don't want to spend too much time on it. Uh, is this water that gets turned into wine. A lot of people that are advocates for drinking. Oh, here we go again. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Andrew's going to get on this alcohol thing. Yep. I knew, I knew you would bring this up. Yeah, I hope the teenagers are listening. Um, so, the question is... thought about making another joke there. I'm not going to. Um, uh, they're listening. They're like, Jesus made a bunch of alcohol. Uh, yeah. A lot of people that are of that mindset try and use this to say it's okay to drink because Jesus made yeah, wine out of water. I would, I would say this is the number one passage used in justification yeah, for that drinking and, uh, in general or little, social drinking or wine is whatever. for the stomach. Yeah, yeah. First to the 523. Yeah. So the question is, was it, and, and the next question is, does it even really matter? Uh, right. Those are the two questions I have. And yeah. For the first question of was it, well... Um, I really, I thought about it, but you know, I don't know if we need to get into all the Greek stuff about the word for wine and, you know, Mm -hmm. this and that and the other. The word for wine that's used here is similar to our, kind of our word for fruit, I guess. You know, if I tell you I had a fruit for lunch, you don't know what fruit I had. You just know I had fruit. Mm -hmm. And wine's the same way. And they had wine that they would water down. They had wine that they wouldn't water down. Um... Some wine was more, I guess, a little more alcoholic than others. Um, And some wine was very low in alcohol level. I mean, that's very true. Now, the argument... Is it not true that some wine was pure grape juice? uh, I think so. Yeah. Um, I know know in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures... 
Mm-hmm. In Isaiah, there's a passage about the, you know, describing the fluid that's being pressed out of the wine press. Mm-hmm. And the word oinos that, that we're talking about here is used to describe the mm-hmm. the juice as it's being pressed out of the wine press. Mm-hmm. So I, that's got to be an example of non-alcoholic juice. Yeah. And this yep. word functioning for that. It's a very fluid word, very broad in its application, and only yeah. the context can tell you whether you're looking at alcoholic wine or non-alcoholic wine. Right, right. And they could, at this point, you know, they could preserve. A big issue that comes up with that is, well, they couldn't preserve it long enough to keep it uh, non-alcoholic, I guess. But that's so, not true. Yeah, exactly right. They could put it in, I've heard of, or I've read, they could put them in these certain types of containers, and then they'd put them down like in the bottom of a lake. Yeah, and I've heard would, the same thing. They'd keep it preserved, and they could bring it back They had out. all kinds of methods. They worked pretty hard in the days before refrigeration to yeah. to keep wine from fermenting, which, which is, means there was a concern about it. Yeah, and it's pretty cool that they were, I mean, if I'm like lost in the woods or something, and I don't have a refrigerator, I'm not going to think, hey, if I put this in a container and <laughs> drop it in the bottom of the lake. I mean, I just thought that was it's pretty neat cool, to cool begin with. Cool enough down there. Yeah. But, uh, so, yeah, they did have non-alcoholic wine at this time, and they did have alcoholic wine. Now, what kind did he make? Uh, there might be a little evidence in there from what the bri- from what the master of the feast, who's like the wedding planner, pretty much, as I understand it, uh, wedding planner says to the bridegroom, you know, everybody saves the good wine, serves the good wine first. And then, when people have drunk freely, the poor wine. Now, that's assuming that's assuming that good wine is fermented wine. Yeah, that he that he decides that, in his opinion, the best wine is the wine that'll get you drunkest the fast. Correct, fastest, drunk the fastest, and that could very well be a false assumption. Yes. So I yeah. definitely agree with you on that. And if you think about this, just in like. I want to think about this from, I guess, as a youth minister, my point of view, even having a youth event. Let's say I've got, um, this is to make our point here. If I have like actual Coke, Coca-Cola, and I have Sam's Club Coke, then I'm going, I'm not going to serve the Sam's Club Coke first. I'm going to serve the Coca-Cola first just because it's, it tastes better. It's higher quality, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this could just simply be, you know, the good wine first, uh, the higher quality wine, and higher quality doesn't necessarily mean more alcohol. So I think it could yeah. just be as, you know, it doesn't have to mean... It could um, mean the opposite. Yeah. I mean, it could be interested in wine that is fresh. Yeah, and know, I guess and, my and, point here is the people don't have to be intoxicated, like intoxicated drunk to where, well, now they don't realize what the wine, yeah. what the wine tastes like. It could just be... And that's that's the argument on the alcoholic yeah. side is, well, he's he's pointing out people are too drunk to know the difference. Yeah. But but your illustration of, you know, Coke just, versus Sam Club... You just had enough to drink. Yeah. Like, I've had enough Coke. I don't want any more... Let's see if it lasts. Let's see if the good stuff lasts. Yeah. You know, maybe it will, maybe it won't. He evidently thought... He he evidently miscalculated. Mm-hmm. I mean, and ran out mm-hmm. for him to have run out anyway. So, um, yeah. The, and the reason that statement is in there is to show Jesus' power, which we'll get to that in a moment. 
Mm-hmm. It's not in there to indicate whether or not this is alcoholic wine. Exactly. It's in there right. to show that he made the best wine in a supernatural manner. Yeah. But we'll we'll get to that in a minute. Well, I'm fine. Let's talk about the sheer... Okay. Well, I want to talk about how much wine was made here. Because <laughs> okay. we got these measures here, and this is, this is the... I have a real problem with the alcoholic interpretation of this. Mm-hmm. Because... What does he say? Six stone jars, each holding, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. That's 150 to 180 gallons of wine. Lot. Our Lord Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, made at a wedding feast, at a party. Now, this is Jesus who never sinned against the old law, which has passages like Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a brawler. Mm-hmm. Strong drink, uh, a mocker, whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. And Proverbs 23, which says, don't be deceived by the wine. And uh, all the warnings about it. You know, drunkenness is condemned in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We'll set aside social drinking. What is 150 gallons of wine, alcoholic wine, for? To get drunk. <laughs> now somebody could say, oh, there was probably hundreds of people there. No, we're talking about Cana of Galilee. This was a small affair. That's true. I, I don't believe, I don't picture a wedding with hundreds of people present. And on top of this, I mean, I, common sense. I don't, and I they've don't, already drunk up six of the, you know, they've already drunk exactly up all That's exactly what I was about to say. Common sense tells anybody that this is not going to be alcoholic wine I think mm-hmm. that's what if you just look at it from sheer common sense right now was Jesus going to make a bunch of alcoholic wine for people to get drunk off of well Cause you put two and two together you know drunkenness is considered to be sinful then probably most likely everybody agrees not. with that yeah most likely not and the master of the feast is not he's not drunk at this point obviously his can, speech is not slurred yeah, yeah there's no extra letters here that don't <laughs> But he can, he can, he can tell the difference between the good wine and the poor wine, so he's not drunk. Yeah, and you know, then you make the argument: well, the wedding planners don't get drunk at the wedding. <laughs> but he is. Either way, there's people. Not everybody is inebriated at this thing, and these well, are they, Jewish people anyway, so they're going to know that strong drink is a mocker. Yeah, and he was taking wine; it's not wise. I don't think they would have had. And these are seven day parties, by the way. These marriages, they last for seven days. I don't think they're going to have like a seven-day rager, all these Jewish people. <laughs> you know, they're not going to be having a seven-day just crazy. Yeah. I uh, mean, it's going to be, it's going to be, I don't, want, I don't want to use the word tame, but if these people care anything about their beliefs, they're going to be careful mm-hmm. about what they have. And certainly Jesus, our Lord, is going to be careful and not just say, "Hey, why well, you guys need wine?" Well, it's wrong to drink. It's wrong. It's wrong to get drunk. But I'm just gonna go ahead and make all this stuff where you're and sit it right out next to you. Don't get drunk on it. Yeah. But here it is. Well, one more point is, you know, I had a professor, Fried Hardeman, who did mission work in Europe for a long time, where attitudes towards alcohol are very different than here. Oh yeah. Here, alcohol is about getting drunk. I mean, I know, I know there are people who d- don't drink to get drunk, whatever. 
But if you look at the commercials on TV, our culture is a binge-drinking culture. Especially when you talk about high school and college students, that's what beer is for, is to get wasted on the weekends. Don't tell me it's not. I mean, that's what it's about. Everybody says it's an acquired taste also, much like coffee. (laughs) Now, you drink coffee for the purpose of probably just keeping you awake uh, or giving you a little bit of energy. And people... Uh, an acquired taste implies that it's not that pleasant to begin with. You have to make yourself acquire yeah. the taste. Well, why do people acquire a taste for something that doesn't taste good with alcohol? Mm-hmm. Well, for the resultant um, effects that it has on your mm-hmm. body. Yeah. And and in Europe, though, it's not so much like that, I'm mm-hmm. told. You know, in Europe, they, they actually drink wine differently. You know, they might sip half a glass of wine... Because this particular Merlot goes with beef, you know. Yeah. They and I know there are people in the states that do that too. But he came from that background, and it kind of changed his views and his his understanding. And he realized that there might have been religious people who drank alcoholic wine. But he pointed out this. He said. First century drinking of alcoholic beverages does not justify 21st century drinking of alcoholic beverages in America. And when he first said that, you know, I was like, what? What do you, you know, but what he's saying here is it's apples and oranges because distillation was invented by the Arabs in the Middle Ages. Mm Mm-hmm. And that made alcoholic beverages of all kinds more potent. And from what I understand, and I'm not a specialist on this, so somebody may correct me if I'm wrong, but when you buy wine at the supermarket, you're buying wine that has distilled alcohol in it. So its its alcoholic percentage is much higher than what would have happened naturally in the grape juices that they used to make wine back in Jesus' day, before yeah. the days of distillation. So keep that in mind, too, that it took a lot more um, alcoholic wine to get you drunk back in those days than it does now. Mm-hmm. But that's not even what this is about, right? Exactly just, right. You know, that's we're lured what... into this because this is the question that people always have. Yeah. And this passage is often ripped out of context and abused to support Social drinking. Exactly. And that's really the only reason I wanted to mention it. I get tired of hearing about I really get tired of hearing about this, and I even hesitated to want to bring it up in our podcast on it. But I think, you know, I think it needs to be because of people that try and pipe up and say, well, hey, I can I can drink because Jesus turned water to wine. Well, that, that's not very good. It's just not good evidence. I mean, just... It's just people, you know, they want to do something. They're trying to find some justification for it. That's not a good piece of evidence for it. Um, But, you know, like you said, that's not even the point here. That's whether or not the wine was alcoholic or whatever is is totally, it's not even really peripheral to it because it's not even that important. Uh, I've got this Anchor Bible commentary in front of me. If you've never heard of those, they are some of the most technical, I guess, Mm -hmm. commentaries out there. Um, and this is what the author of the one, um, this particular commentary in the beginning of John, this is what he has to say about it. Uh, Thus, the first sign had the same purpose that all the subsequent signs will have. 
namely the revelation about the person of Jesus. John does not put primary emphasis on the replacing of the water for Jewish purification, nor on the changing of water to wine, which is not described in detail, nor even on the resultant wine. John does not put primary emphasis on Mary or on her intercession, nor on why she pursued her request, nor on the reaction of the head waiter or of the groom. The primary purpose is, as in all the stories of John, on Jesus as the one sent by the Father to bring salvation to the world. Which the, he, he's right because yeah. verse 11 says, This the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory mm-hmm. and his disciples believed in him. Mm-hmm. Um, so, to me, it's a shame to take that. It didn't say his brothers believed in him, which is interesting. Yeah, which is uh, we'll get to that in chapter 7. Mm-hmm. But his disciples believed in him because of the first of the signs. Now, John liked to use the word sign. We, we t- almost always say miracle, which emphasizes power. And um, even the King James translates this term miracle in verse 11. But mm-hmm. it's translated from the Greek simeon, which means sign. Yeah. And, and signs point to mm-hmm. some significance. That's what signs do. They're not just about themselves, but they're pointing out something. And here, the, they're just generally pointing out the, uh, the glory of God. John uses that term, by the way, 78 times in this, even though there are only seven yeah, signs. Yeah, I was about to ask how many... I mean, I was going to ask, which of them does he call signs, or does he use miracles? I, he never uses the term miracle. Hmm. Never uses it. It's always signs. Um, he wants us to know that these... Miracles have spiritual significance. And I heard somebody sometime compare it to parables and and say, I think it was John Stott that said this, that uh, the miracles of Jesus in the book of John work like living parables. You know, a parable is an illustration on these signs, and, and it'll become clearer on some of the others. These signs are illustrations of Jesus, who he is, what he's all about, what he does for us. Uh, There are three basic categories of miracles in uh, Jesus' ministry. 24 healing miracles, 10 examples of nature miracles, three resurrections. Uh, Generally speaking, that's what they are, but we know there are a lot of others. John, at the end of the book, says uh, there are not enough books to hold them all. And even in this chapter, we saw that he's working a lot more than what John is revealing. Verse 23 says, when they saw the signs that he was doing, they were believing on him at this particular Passover feast. Well, uh, he doesn't mention any miracles at the Passover feast, but just simply says, and we'd love to know each and every one of them. It'd be interesting. I'm sure there's some really interesting ones out there that have never been recorded. Yeah. But uh, they're just not, you know, we we have what we need, and that's enough. Yeah, I've got Um, a... Interesting. I guess it just adds a little more clarification to this word for sign here that's sometimes translated, translated miracles. Uh, this definition I've got says something that by which something is known or distinguished, an indication, a mark, or a signal. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, we think about something the, by which something else is distinguished. Yeah. And I know, think so that's it's something about something. Yeah, you know, 
It's so it's never like about itself. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. That's why I like that word, a mark or a signal. Yeah, you know, I guess good. that clarifies a little bit more than a sign. This right. is it proves himself, I guess. Now let's talk about miracles in general, what they are, because this is a debate that people have. You know, uh, there there used to be a television show called Miracle Workers, and it was about doctors doing medicine, and that mm-hmm. was their miracle work. Uh, People, you know, all the time refer to childbirth as a miracle. Mm. And I understand what they mean by that. And yes, it's amazing. And yes, it's God. Uh, But there needs to be, and this goes back to a discussion we had last week, we need to have some language that distinguishes what we're looking at at Cana from God's activity in the world in general. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we talked about Jesus seeing Nathaniel under the fig tree and uh, how that's obviously miraculous, yet one chapter later, Cana of Galilee is described as the first of the signs that Jesus worked. So um, you could say, well, there are miracles and there are signs. But I prefer to use, you know, the way that I distinguish God's general activity on behalf of man from a miracle is the term providence. Now, you don't have to use providence. You can use something else. But I do think it's important to distinguish what we're going to be studying in the book of John in terms of signs from God's general non-miraculous activity on our behalf in the world. I believe God is still very active in the world, but I do not believe that we witness signs in the same way that Jesus's people, uh, multitudes, disciples were witnessing his signs. If so, then they would be bringing glory upon the miracle workers today in the same way they brought glory upon him. And and one of the things that made this a sign was the fact that it manifested his glory. Um, These are are phenomena that the people had never seen before. I'll give you a couple of definitions of a miracle that I think are pretty good. Uh, David Hume, who didn't believe in God, yeah. was uh, and this was in a an essay uh, against miracles, but he needed to define them to argue against them. He um, defined them as a transgression of a law of nature by a particular volition of the deity, or by the interposition of some invisible agent, which I think is pretty good. Um, I like uh, Eric Metaxas in his new book, Miracles. Uh, He says that a miracle is something outside time and space when it enters time and space, whether just to wink at us or poke at us briefly or to come in and dwell among us for three decades. That, of course, is a reference to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Um, Pretty good. Uh, Now, notice... Hume talks about the laws of nature, and uh, I like that idea when something, uh, he says, transgresses a law of nature. Mm -hmm. This phrase, law of nature, is complicated because it distances the amazing works of God on a daily basis from God. When we say, say they're simply laws of nature, we divorce them from God, and we take them for granted. When in actuality, what we mean by a law of nature 
is basically God's everyday activity on our behalf, or as I would call it, providence. Mm -hmm. And another thing Metaxas says in his book is, the laws of nature describe the universe, but they explain nothing. And I think that's another good statement, is when we talk about a law of nature like gravity, and how the earth can spin around the sun without ever running into the sun and burning up, we say, oh, that's a law of nature. No, that's God suspending, um, sustaining the universe. Mm -hmm. That's God keeping us alive every minute. And the biological processes in your body are God sustaining your body, your life. The fact that you wake up from a night's sleep is God's working. The the Mm -hmm. seed germinating into a plant and producing fruit is God's activity. And it is just as amazing as Jesus changing water into wine. We just take it for granted because it happens every day. R.C. Trench wrote a book on miracles in which he said that these daily provisions, this providence, is not more... Well, I'm sorry, I got that backwards. Miracles. He said miracles are just like the providence of God, the daily provisions like gravity or a seed growing in a plant. And he said the miracles are not more wonderful, just less frequent. Now yeah. That, you know, I think is very important to point out. I've heard a, a quote from somebody, and I can't remember who it was now, but it's not per se that a lot of the miracles, it's not what happens that's miraculous, but it's the timing or the manner in which it happens. Uh, and you can help me out with this, with the water turning to wine even, there's the mention of you know the natural process of, of grape juice fermenting into wine. There's something, I think I've got it. In the text? Here. No, not in the text. Uh, there is, yeah, here we go. Here's a quote from a guy named A.M. Hunter who wrote a gospel according to John. Um, and along with actually C.S. Lewis, these guys think of this miracle as like a literal creative act of God. Uh, you know, which, as we're talking about, will definitely be something that is, you know, um, I guess a part of, kind of along these same lines. It says, every year as a part of the natural order, God makes wine. He does so by creating a vegetable organism that can turn water, soil, and sunlight into a juice, which will, under the proper circumstances, become wine. Once, at one time only, God, now incarnate, talking about Jesus, short-circuits the process, makes wine in a moment, uses earthenware jars instead of vegetable fibers to hold the water. So, they kind of draw... Yeah, and I've got a quotation from Guy in Woods that says essentially the same thing. This was during one of his Q&A or open forum sessions at uh, Fried Hardeman back in the 60s. And uh, he said, Even the miracles were just operations of a higher law and not in conflict with natural law. As a matter of fact, the Lord himself, who is author of law, could not violate the law. If he chose at any time in the past to operate on a different basis, it would not be in violation or in conflict with it. I often use this illustration, the miracle at Cana in Galilee, our Lord's first miracle when he turned water into wine, has been the object of a great amount of scoffing on the part of unbelievers. But the truth of the business is the Lord turns water into wine every year. What he did on that occasion, he does every year, the only difference being that in that case 
He speeded the process. He did in an instant what he normally takes several months to do. Yeah. What? Well, I've heard that, and you know, people are usually impressed by this statement. But I don't. I disagree with that. Yeah, like where's the grapes and stuff? Right. I could set a jar of water out on the porch for 15 years, and it would <laughs> never, ever turn into wine. Yeah. So I do not, and it, it sounds like he got this from Lewis. Well, that wasn't a quote from Lewis. Well, it was a quote uh, from there's... somebody who referred to Lewis, right? Yeah. You, you mentioned C.S. Lewis. Uh, you know... Why Why do we have a problem with the idea? It seems that he's saying this apologetically to to say Jesus is not, not breaking. Well, yeah. he's, Jesus is not breaking the laws of nature. He's just speeding this up and he's demythologizing. Oh, I shouldn't have tried to say that word. <laughs> Demythologization is yeah, that's good. <laughs> taking away a slurred word. Taking we away about. some of the mystery of the miracle. And yeah. uh, you Which, know why I, do you why do you want to do that? Yeah, it's not like it makes it any more. It's like oh okay, so he didn't do it. Oh, he yeah, didn't just create it because I see people do it all the time. You just sped it up. Yeah, I see people speed it up all the time. Yeah, just, just water and you know water and stone jars and wine. Yeah, there you go. There you have uh, missing an ingredient here. Yeah, grapes. Grapes. You cannot. You know you don't even use water. You to crush grapes and. Wine comes out. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the I think the whole point of it is we don't know what's going on here. That's what a miracle is. And that... So yeah. we distinguish it from daily providence, which is just as wonderful, more frequent, mm-hmm. but just as wonderful. Um, you think about... It's something that doesn't happen every day, and that's what makes it a miracle. Yeah. Think about the... There are... There are three parallels. Well, I guess kind of you can make them parallels, whether they are or not directly is up for debate. But there are three kind of parallel miracles in the Old Testament. And the first of those is Moses turning the water to blood uh, in Exodus mm-hmm. chapter 7. And that was the first like public miracle of Moses, and there's a lot of commentators that make the uh, connection from the first sign of Jesus to the first one of Moses. They involve changing water to something else. But Moses changing the water to blood, that's not... I mean, like you said, you don't leave water out and it turns into wine. Water doesn't just magically turn into blood either. You know, no. there, there are a lot of miracles that Christ or that God himself does that are just, you know, the... A dead body's not going to come back to life on its own. True. It's going to do the opposite. It's going to continue to decompose. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, but of course, they might say on the timing of that, he just reverses the process or something. But, uh, you know, let's not get into the business of trying to explain the miracles. Exactly. Because, yeah. I mean, number one, there's no way we can do it. And then right. number two, even if we could, what would it what would it matter? I mean, that's not going to change the fact that Jesus did this to prove that he was the Son of God. Mm-hmm. And that was the first of his uh, marks or signals that that was who he really was. Right. Okay, we've gone way over, but we need to get into the the second you know, yeah, we story. we talked about the, the temple. Part, yeah. There is a little to think about on this one. Um, you know, basically, and I want to say more about the temple 
in the practical section, but uh, let's. This is definitely a, a section two uh, discussion. Is you know what's going on here with the money changers and the livestock and the temple? This proves that I can go to all churches with bookstores in the lobby with a whip and whip everyone out of the bookstore. Hmm. Right? I don't know. Is that right? Oh, maybe the Starbucks. Okay, there's some Starbucks, Starbucks in, in some churches lobby. these days. We need a Starbucks in our church lobby. Mm. How about just right outside? No, we do not need right that. Um, I would maybe on the corner coming in. Um, there are two words for the temple that are used in the New Testament: naos, which has to do with you know the actual temple proper, the holy mm. place, most holy place. And then Hieron, which has to do with the temple precincts. precincts. And those had four courts. And if one entered through the east, he would come through these courts in this order. They would go through the court of the Gentiles, then through the court of the women, then through the court of Israel, and finally the court of priests, getting more exclusive as you go in. Yeah. Uh, these events recorded here had to have occurred in the court of the Gentiles. So we're not talking about livestock inside the holy holy place. This is far removed from the holy place. We're talking about a large area here. Out where the wall of partition is. Yeah. It's got that. I love that. There's that plaque on it, or there used to be a plaque on it that said, any Gentile that passes this wall is responsible for his own death. Or something. Yeah. So something like, oh, well, wow. I have himself to thank for his ensuing death. Yeah. That, cool. beyond that. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, so, the merchants were selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons. And these were the kinds of animals that were to be offered on feast days. And this was Passover, a time for mm-hmm. a feast. And what was going on here is merchants were exploiting the Passover and the temple by selling livestock for use on, in the sacrifices. Now, Josephus claimed that, and he was prone to exaggeration, but Josephus said that 200,000 lambs are sacrificed just during Passover. So there's some money to be made here uh, selling lambs and other livestock. Uh, money changers were there exchanging foreign currencies into what would be used in Judea because people were coming from all over the world. Jews lived all over the place. Yeah. Acts 2 shows you that. And uh, they charged fees to exchange the money, just like banks would today if you were going to do this. So that's why those two groups of people were there. And in a flash of fury, Jesus drives them out because they had turned his father's house into a house of trade. So we'll say more about it in the next section, but that's basically what those people were doing there. They were making a great deal of money, either by changing money for the people who needed their currency exchanged into the stuff used in Judea to buy livestock to make their sacrifice. You know, it's a lot easier to travel without the animals, get to Jerusalem and buy the animals there, than to herd sheep all the way down to Jerusalem from wherever you come come from uh that's enough for section two we'll we'll take a quick break we'll be right back
Let's tie all of this together with some very, very practical lessons. So here's number one from the first. There are two episodes in this chapter, and we'll draw lessons for both. Uh, so from the first, the wedding feast at Cana, I think the lesson that we need to draw from it, although there is a temptation, as we've discussed, to draw out all kinds of other peripheral lessons. But the lesson we need to draw out from this is that miracles were a means to an end. Yeah. You know, they, they, John uses the word sign instead of miracle, not emphasizing the power of the act, but rather the, the significance of the act. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he spells it out for us here, what, what the miracle was telling us. It was manifesting Jesus' glory, and it created belief on behalf of his disciples. Yeah. So that's what a miracle was for. And that may explain why, you know, you don't see miracles of this kind in the way that we defined them in the last segment uh, today because they've, they've accomplished that purpose of glorifying Jesus. He's been glorified. We have these miracles. We have the result of the miracle in the Word of God, the result of the miracle of inspiration. Yeah, and it's that way all throughout the Old Testament as well. You know, and after Christ, all the miracles that are done, or all the signs and wonders that are done by the apostles in the book of Acts, all these different things are done not uh, not just for whoever's doing them, not just for their glory. In the case of Christ, it is. But um, in the case of these other guys, like we mentioned Moses in the last uh, section, there was also Elijah, Elisha, all these guys. Those signs were done in order that God may be glorified, you know. Yeah. And I think... And, you know, Jesus, uh, John doesn't talk about this, so we'll bring it up now. Jesus refuses to work miracles when he was tempted in the wilderness by the devil. That was the temptation was, do these miracles. I've got these ideas that you turn stone into bread, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple, and, and Jesus refused to do them because... They, they were to be used only for a purpose. When we talked about Philippians, uh, you know, Paul is worried about Epaphroditus who is sick, nearly dead. And we talked about the fact that, you know, Paul was a miracle worker. Why didn't he just heal him? It's because it was a, would be an abuse of miracles. Yeah. It would not have been for a sign. It would have been to self-serve. And uh, he only wanted that he wanted God to heal Epaphroditus, but only in God's way. That is, according to the laws that God has set in place to govern the universe and in its providential way. And God answered the prayer, as He does today. So, miracles, we're, we're not saying don't pray to God for results. We're not saying don't believe God is active in your life today. Believe in providence, which is his non-miraculous way of using the laws that he's already set in place to benefit you. You know, believe in that. Trust in that. Believe that God works and he's active and the prayer works and that God answers prayer. But the kind of signs that we're going to be studying in the book of John, you know, healing a man born blind or turning water into wine, those kinds of things do not happen today. Because they only happened at the hands of Jesus and his disciples. Um, 
during a temporary period of time. The second lesson we want to bring up is that Jesus... Well, let's let's word it better than that, make it more general. Um, anger in and of itself is not wrong. Anger has to be controlled. Now, Jesus got angry here. I don't know any other way you can read this. Mm-hmm. You know, he's making a whip out of cords. He's turning over tables, making a mess in the court of the Gentiles. He was angry. And um, there's an episode described in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, where it says, He looked around with anger. So it even specifies yeah. the emotion as anger. You know, I know there are passages of Scripture that warn us about anger, anger, but, you know, as in Including. Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4 says, Be angry and sin not. So yeah. it's possible to be angry without sin, and the sin is when you lose control of your anger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely, you know, even Jesus himself warns against anger in the Sermon on the Mount. He oh, says, I tell yeah. you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to the council. Right. So he definitely... Uh, well, he's but that's a totally different context. Talking about murder and the problem behind murder. Yeah, that's the kind of anger that's out of place. control. Yeah, and he had he had he this was thought out. He knew what he was doing. In the end, the results were positive. He he got some criticism, but it was the kind of criticism that he probably wanted to receive, and it reminded his disciples of of this passage: "Zeal for your house will consume me." Mm-hmm. And, you know, so they didn't interpret it as anger. They interpreted it as zeal. Yeah. Which makes this really practical for us. Are we the kind of people that would overturn money changers' tables in the house of the Lord today? Mm-hmm. Or are we the kind of people that would say, hey, you know, that's really convenient. Um, uh, you know, I'd like to, uh, you know, make my life a lot easier, make it as easy as possible to fulfill this religious obligation. I'm afraid we're more like the latter than the former. And we need to be people who are so zealous for God that sin makes us angry, that we get mm-hmm. riled up about things that challenge what we love the most, which is God. Yeah, and there's so much apathy and indifference in the church today. It's it's this example of Jesus condemns us in that apathy. Yeah, I, you know, if I had to pick what the worst or what the biggest problem is for churches now in America, at least, mm-hmm. or the you know, at least my experience has been in the the, south, the southeastern part of the United States is definitely apathy. You just can't. I mean, you can get so many folks rounded up to spend money on so many different things and to give their time to so many different things and to work really hard at a lot of different things. But a lot of times you have such a hard time, and I know a lot of you know minister ministry leaders, ministers, elders, deacons can probably attest to this. It's really hard to get people really motivated and fired up about um, church-related stuff, I guess. Now, in a lot of cases, it's not. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that do have this kind of zeal, but across the board, I mean, you just look at what people are doing now. You know, think about the time that you spend um, when you get home from work and the things that you do. 
You know, where do you spend most of your time? Where do you put most of your money? What do you get? Money. I was going to bring up money. Yeah. Just look at your checkbook or, you know, if people don't use checkbooks anymore, look at your bank statement online. Yeah. And that will tell you where your enthusiasm is. Yeah. What things do, and what things do you actually, like, get excited about? Because, you know, What do you like the, to talk about? Yeah. Because, I mean, I know during, there are days when you have plans at night. You're sitting in the office or you're, you're at work or at school or whatever it is you're doing. And all you can think about is what you're going to do that night. You know, because you're really excited about your plans later. You know, and I just, I, it's very rare. And it's awesome when you see it, but it's very rare that you see people now here. Because we're so comfortable and it's just like a, a taken for granted part of life. Uh, people don't really feel that way about when they're going to meet together with the other Christians at worship. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they're going to, like if there's a retreat or something. Or um, or even just like trying to get families to sit down and talk about biblical things at home. You know, that's not necessarily something you're excited to do, I guess. Not necessarily something that you think, oh man, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to getting home and discussing this spiritual thing with my wife, kids, husband, whatever it is. You know, and I guess and ready to tear down any of the institutions or obstacles that keep you from having that time with your family. Yeah, I, I would love I would love for a few Christians to have the guts to tell coaches. No, I can't. Yeah, I can't. I can't play baseball on Sunday. Yeah, because if enough people who call themselves Christians in this country would do that, the coaches would quit using Sundays and Wednesdays for their ball games. Yeah, we can't even do that. Let just, alone turn the tables over. Yeah, and exactly. you know, get as zealous as Christ. And kids, man, kids and their parents probably more so than the kids will get all kinds of fired up for a ball game. Yeah. Regardless of it's baseball, football, basketball, and never whatever. cross the coach. Yeah. And but buddy, you know they'll, they'll be you know you got to get ready. You can't do this tonight because you got your game tomorrow. You know they might don't. bench my son. Yeah. But then when well, it comes your son's to, not that good anyway. <laughs> yeah. And then when it comes to this, you know, when it comes to spiritual stuff, it's like, oh yeah, read your Bible. Yeah, I'm gonna send you to church. I'm gonna send you to youth group time. But this isn't really something we're gonna. You know, get fired up about and mm-hmm. make sure that yeah. we're all that we're all working towards. It's just it's backwards, and it reminds me of Paul. You know that same word used about Paul. Paul's talking about the zeal he has, um, and in Philippians chapter three, he's actually talking about the zeal that, or he's talking about when he was a a Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as he says. He says, "I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin, as a law a Pharisee, as to zeal." A persecutor of the church. And so for Paul, as a Pharisee, he, he obviously is under the belief that Christ was a false teacher. And if you are a Jew and you don't believe in Christ, then you are just extremely upset and appalled at everything Christ taught. Because he says he's the son of... He equates himself to God, almost. Mm-hmm. And certainly as a Jew, that is one of the worst things you can do. And so Paul... You know, he had zeal, and later uh, Paul actually talks about, you can help me out with this, Paul talks about the other Jews, and he says that they have they have a zeal, but not according to knowledge. Yeah, it's Romans 10. Yeah. 
And so that's so it's that not just Paul's zeal case. that we're looking for here. You know, let it be done according to knowledge. Yeah, both of those are are you know, those two sides of the same same coin, I think. But Paul is a guy that was zealous as a Pharisee, but not according to knowledge. And then once he got the knowledge of Christ, he stayed yeah. very zealous. Yeah. Paul was a guy that you know he would do what had to be done. Got excited about it. Uh, the way th- the way that he writes his letters, you could tell. Uh, that he is, you know, he he talks about people that are uh, doing things the wrong way, and you can see the the passion and the words that he used when he writes. You know, he's he cares. Yeah, and I guess, hey, we're about out of time, but I wanted to point out this last lesson. Man, we are out of time. Um, verse twenty five: Jesus knows what's in you. I think that's a good lesson to end on. He oh, yeah. knew what was in man. Jesus knows what's in you. As uh, the Lord told Samuel, I look on the heart. He looks on all of our hearts. You might be able to fool your family and your church and your your brethren, but uh, you cannot fool God. We need repentance to start within and move without. Mm-hmm. Be just a warning to us as we close John chapter 2. And we're so grateful to everyone who tunes in and listens We've gotten a lot of great feedback. Please feel free to go on to iTunes and leave us a review. Uh, we, we love to read that, and it helps in, helps get us up in the rankings. Maybe one of these days when somebody types in 66, we'll be the first thing that pops up when they do that. Yeah. But not today. <laughs> yeah. I haven't got there yet. Also, uh, check out my new book, Christian Hope, available at riddlecreekpublishing.com or at uh, Amazon or Barnes & Noble. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, between episodes, if you want to send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. You can email Andrew at akingsley at arcoc.com, me at dkaiser at arcoc.com. Our website is the66.net, and uh, Twitter handle, the66podcast. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time on The 66.